Hi, I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you're listening to Polit, the podcast for political posits. Hi, and welcome to the 13th episode of the Polit podcast, lucky number 13 on the podcast for political posits. So I'm really happy to say I'm sat here with Sam Mace, who is a PhD student at the University of Leeds and an editor of the Leeds Postgraduate Review. He's currently writing a thesis entitled Westphalian Sovereignty and the State of Exception Within Syria and Iraq. Looking forward to discussing that a little bit. Before that, however, if you haven't been to the blog, there should be a link in the description. Please follow on the emailing list to get all that content that doesn't become a podcast episode. Also, please, please, please like, share, subscribe and follow. It would mean the absolute world to me. I'd also like to point out that we're recording this on Zoom, so I do apologise for any problems with the audio. And I'd like to send a big thank you to Eric Beals, who has been sorting the audio for me. So, Sam, I'd like to begin with a quote by Carl Schmitt, and this is, Sovereign is he who decides on the exception. Can you unpack that for me? Okay, thanks for the introduction, and thanks for having me on, Kieran. So, Sovereign is he who decides on the exception is maybe the most infamous crow, um, or famous, depending on your interpretation, um, <laughs> of Schmitt's thesis. So, this is the idea that Sovereign is literally he who decides on the exception. So sovereign is that person who is enabled and empowered to decide outside of the constitutional mechanisms and norms of that country, um, both to decide on the state of emergency, so when a state of emergency is required and when to act, and also how to implement said actions. Okay. So my thesis aims at unpicking this claim. So the claim basically rests upon the ability to both decide on the exception and to implement your will. And that requires certain things, right, that you can actually view in Schmidt's philosophy, Schmidt's underlying philosophy, so a bedrock of authority. So in order to be able to kind of decide upon the exceptions and be able to implement that, you need people to follow you. You need to be in a position to be able to activate that. And if you're not in a position to activate that, then you can't really decide on the exception. So the belief that this is all about the power of the state, and this is fundamentally about power, is kind of mistaken because... If it was just about power and power alone, um, you wouldn't need all these different things. You wouldn't need the ability to interact with this um, mechanism. You would need the ability to be able to kind of uh, decide on the exception. And you wouldn't need to be able to cultivate followers. So by using the example of Syria, which is the most clear example. Um, so Syria, Syria was under a state of emergency from 1963 until 2011. Um, this was supposed to be an example of a strong authoritarian state that was very stable, very secure, um, that activated through a decision-making process. So the Assad regime, the, Assad, the Assadist leadership um, made, made decisions. And um, even though there was a constitutional framework, there weren't many checks and balances to the Assad regime itself, right? Um, the regime could really do as it willed, yeah? <laughs> decided. Um, and... So according to Schmidt's idea and according to kind of um, according to theorists such as Agamben, because the state operated under a maximization of power, being able to decide upon the exception as they did, um, this would traditionally mean that they were sovereign and they were unchallenged. And therefore, that required that created a stability inside the state itself. 
Mm -hmm. um, okay, what we saw, and I'll stop you there because I do have a question. Um, yeah. Two things actually that listeners might not necessarily um, uh, know of. The first is, could you just explain a little bit about who Carl Schmidt is? And then after that, can you address the question of how you understand sovereignty? Okay, yeah, sure. Like so, <laughs> so um, if, if your viewers aren't around, I'm sure you know if you want to jump in, Kieran Carl Schmidt's a political theorist from the from the 20th century, um, and he's a very controversial political theorist, right? Because yeah. both of his political views on authoritarianism um, and his attempt to discredit liberalism and separate states out of the democratic norm. Um, he, he, he's someone who, with his association with the Nazi party in the 1930s, was a car came member from 1933. Um, he, he, he kind of refused to apologise um, for his involvement in that period as well. He, he, even, um, he, he, was, uh, he wasn't in the Nuremberg trials, but he was detained um, for a period of time by the Americans post-war into looking into putting him on trial for, for his activities, which they eventually decided not to do, but he was banned from teaching um, post-World War II, so he wasn't allowed to teach ever again. And for his anti-Semitism in his political works, most notably his work on the Leviathan and Thomas Hobbes. Mm. Um, so he's a very controversial political thinker. His work is centred around, uh, well, it's... His work really spans numerous different concepts, but he's most famous for the state of the exception yeah. and sovereign decisionism. And on the second question, what is sovereignty? That's a big, that, that, that's a big, all-encompassing question, which my thesis hopes to answer. My, my thesis hopes to answer that question. I, I, I believe sovereignty requires um, sovereignty requires a few different things, I believe. So I, I use the work of Caparoso, um, who viewers may not know about, and I completely recognize that, but in general, the scheme that Caparoso kind of talks about is authority, citizenship, territory, um, and he calls it sovereignty, but we'll call it power, because that's basically when he talks about sovereignty, he basically talks about power and the ability to do things. Mm -hmm. So Caparoso argues that sovereignty is kind of, in the modern world, in the globalised world, sovereignty is under contention because states that require these four things, which is a territorial space, right, under the under territory, it needs to define territorial space. Um, it needs power, so it needs the ability to control the activities inside that territorial space. Um, it needs authority, so authority is the recognised right to rule of a certain institution over people governed in that space. And it needs citizenship, which is an active kind of equality of people um, inside that space as well. So you can't have different groups having different rights. People need to operate under the same rights. Um, so states need to attain these four conditions in order to proclaim themselves sovereign for capital. Now he says that this is really difficult in the modern world because of globalization and different things that basically mean these things become not solid, but liquid. So these things become influx. So my contention about sovereignty is that I think you do need those four things to put for a state to really be sovereign and to be stable and to be secure. Sure. Um, and that the state of the exception, which is the implementation of power through the act of decision, undermines these different traits in different ways when exercised over a period of time. Um, so it undermines it undermines authority because your recognized right to rule is not static. It's, it's fluid, right? Your recognized right to rule would change over time. Um, and if you're continuously making bad decisions as a sovereign, your recognized right to rule may actually start to ebb away, may start to disintegrate, right. may, may, 
it may start to basically not work how we want it to. So we often see resolutions, for example, of, of leaders um, in non-democratic states emerge with great um, support of the people, uh, of the citizenship um, in the beginning. But then five, 10, 15 years down the line, as these rulers start to kind of cultivate weaknesses, show off weaknesses, make bad decisions, that authority starts to slip away. It doesn't, sure. doesn't stay the same. Um, Territoriality is a really interesting one um, because Schmidt lived in a time of the pre-internet. So Schmidt <laughs> lived in a time. <laughs> Schmidt lived in a time when space was literal space. Yes, yeah? space meant literal space. So one of the things that my thesis looks at is what I call non-physical space. So the interaction interaction of physical space, the, the literal territory, with the non-physical space that has a political impact on the on on the actual territory, which is the internet. So one example that I use in my thesis is the Egyptian Revolution, where the Muslim Brotherhood, who were who were um, trying to oust the Mubarak regime, um, kept servers in London. So Mubarak actually tried to shut down the internet um, <laughs> during the revolution. He tried to shut down the internet because that was how people were communicating. So he's like, well, they shut down the internet. I stopped the protests. It's perfectly fine. This will this will knock the this will knock the revolution right out. The Muslim Brotherhood actually had servers in London, which Mubarak couldn't touch. So they were still able to get their message across the internet, which was allegedly shut down by Mubarak. So it's how this um, non-physical space is actually immune to this sovereign decision process, because actually it's not just people, it's not just physical territorial space that you can control, it's the non-territorial space that actually has an impact on, on the politics on the ground as well. Um, so then we come to citizenship and uh, equality. Um, of rights. Now, even though Schmidt talks about homogeneity and the equality of, uh, of kind of citizenship, the friend-enemy dichotomy, I always think, undercuts this. So the friend-enemy dichotomy is, the, is, is Schmidt's way to try to pinpoint the political and to try to say, okay, so one of the reasons which we kind of create authority for the state is to we're going to direct our enmity, our political enmity, against either internal, internal or external enemies, which are decided by the sovereign. Now, if you have certain internal enemies <laughs> um, that you decide you want to kind of oust and get rid of politically, yeah, then people who are sitting inside that state obviously do not will not occupy the same kind of equality citizenship rights that the people who are the friends of the state um, occupy as well. So that creates a inbuilt tension um, inside the state as well when you're trying to build that authority of the state. That can also impact the power of the state. Um, and there is also again the fluidity. Of the friend enemy dichotomy. Um, so, for instance, in the Syrian revolution, um, the Alawite community, which forms the majority of, uh, of the Syrian government, but a minority of the Syrian state, mm -hmm. um, seem to be friends, of, generally friends, of the Assad regime, vast majority of them. But over time, as the Assad regime um, became more and more brutal, that started to wither away. So then people started to recognise the state as the enemy. As the internal enemy that they needed to fight, um, rather than the internal friend. So yeah. people can start to make up their own minds about who the internal friend and enemy is once that authority is kind of withered away yeah. um, of the state, and that really directly affects the power of the state. So the ability, so the the power of the state is actually really, in reality, it's built upon all these different things. Um, and all for the power to be exercised is built upon all these different qualities. And if these qualities start to drain away. The power of the state becomes existentially weakened, and therefore, what decisions the sovereign makes 
becomes less and less relevant and even counterproductive. And therefore, the sovereign is not necessarily he who decides upon the exception. Yeah, that's great. No, no, that's good. That's good. Uh, I like that. that that's interesting. So one of the questions uh, I would like to ask is, do you agree, disagree, or do you have something in between concerning Schmidt's conception of the political as the friend-enemy distinction? Again, that's a light question, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think it's tricky. Um, I don't think it's a universal truth. Um, oh, that's in good. a sense. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it can be true in political systems which do not allow for plurality and political confrontation outside of the entity that Schmidt decides upon. So I think in political systems that are authoritarian by nature, Schmidt's dead right. The political is those who will potentially fight to the death because there's no release valve on that on that on that feeling. Um, in liberal democracies, I don't think it's true. Um, I, I think I think liberal democracies do have release valves, which we call elections, which allow for plurality because we, as long as we all recognise the rules rules of the game. So we construct constitutions to recognise the rules of the game. And if we all play by the rules of the game, then we may have dislikable feelings towards our enemies, such as, like, if you're conservative, you may dislike Labour. But you're not, you wouldn't be willing to fight to the death because you both inherently recognise the political system that you embed. So in that way, the political, I think, exists, even if not to the strength of the entity that Schmidt decides upon. So I, I, I think it's... I think Schmidt's right when he's describing the political foundations of authoritarian systems. I think in liberal, dem liberal democratic systems, we found a way or attempted to find a way um, to navigate those terrains where we don't have to feel that partisanship. Now, you may well say, well, look at America and Donald Trump and the events that happened um, with the capital um, invasion. And that, that you know, that's a that's something we need to think about quite carefully, I think. Actually, can you speak to that um, uh, for us? Um, how do you understand the relationship between the events of the Capitol on the 6th of January, I think it was, um, and any kind of relationship you can see with uh, questions about violence and questions about legitimacy in relation to Schmidt? I know that's, again, like a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think what happened on the 6th of January, I think in order to understand it, we need to, we need to go back a bit understand what some of the Trump movement is really about. And some of the Trump movement is really about not believing in the authority and the legitimacy of the Federal Republic of the United States mm -hmm. um, and believing that there is an elite, fun a fundamental elite, which in reality Trump is part of. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but a fun and has been part of for a very long time. But a fundamental elite which are trying to rob them of their voice and trying to delegitimize them as citizens and go after them. Um, and that's because of the breakdown in the American democratic system. It's a I, I think it's a fundamental breakdown in the democratic system in America where because of the peculiar nature um, of the setup of the American democratic system, let's put it that way. And peculiar um, as well. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, you know, all politics is local. Um, we can't. I don't think you can discount the context of the American system to understand those to understand those riots. Um, Trump, as well as a charismatic figure, definitely had a hand in it. 
um I think Trump acted, and Schmidt would like this. Um, I don't know if you saw, actually. Did, did you see um, that there was a poll on Twitter that asked if Schmidt would vote for Trump? No, I didn't see this. Um, there was a poll on, um, it was either, do you think that Schmidt would vote for Trump? Or it was what modern political theorist would vote for Trump? And a few people oh, said cool. talked about Schmidt. And it got me. I don't know what you think about this, Kim, because I know you're uh, you're interested in Schmidt as well. But what I mean, what do you? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think the problem with trying to work out which theorists would have voted for who in the contemporary era is, I mean, especially with Trump, because Trump was so um, still is, but you never quite knew what was going to happen. I mean, half of it was the entertainment value, but you know, not yeah, <laughs> yeah, in a good way. But like you know, he kept you on your toes. And I don't know if that would necessarily be something that Schmidt would appreciate. I don't know if that would be something that I, th- I don't know if that would that would make him uncomfortable, or perhaps perhaps that would be exactly the sort of thing he would like. I don't know, but it's interesting. Yeah, th- there's a little bit of me that thinks Schmidt would definitely um, definitely pull the lever for Trump. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think that 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 charisma, the fact that Schmidt, uh, the fact that Trump was very good at defining enemies and friends um Ooh, that's true i didn't think of that that's a good that, yeah that's that's a, that's a good explanation yeah because he always had that he always focused so much on decisions like the 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 language he always used was always sort of performative speech acts right and that was yeah. always very clearly cut um and i never thought of that that's good that's good yeah like when he talks about deals like the iran deal the iran nuclear deal is the worst deal ever made and and uh, NAFTA's the worst deal ever made, and, and and all these different things. And I'll get the best deals. And um, he also did a famous did a famous uh, quote where he's like, "You're going to be so tired of winning. It's going to be winning all the time. You're going to be tired of it." Yeah. it it's that. It's that. <laughs> and that power of the state. That the power of Trumpism. Yeah. I, I, and I do. I, I yeah. I, I I I I did actually write a piece. Um, I, I did. I did actually jot some stuff down about about Trumpism and about the required reaction of the Biden administration to to, mm-hmm. to the writers because I felt they need to really go after. They, they need to re-establish authority and yeah and control and letting these people go seemed a fundamental error. They it, it, it yeah. seemed a bit like well you're kind of bargaining with people who in Schmidt Schmittian terms are past the bargaining stage. Yeah, they're they're not willing to bargain with you. You can't bargain with them. Um, you can't really placate them anymore. The people involved in that in that attack, um, it seemed like a it seemed to me like a waste of time. And the prudent thing, um, political prudence is an interesting term as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you read um Adam Weinstein's Adam, yeah, I think it's Adam Weinstein's book on Burke and Lincoln. He talks about the concept of political prudence mm. and how prudence isn't always uh the most the most easygoing because the, the way we use prudent we might we might think of neville chamberlain mm-hmm. uh as prime minister before world war ii that wasn't prudent according to this book because prudence would be to recognize the danger of the oncoming storm and to deal yeah. with that effectively yeah that thing, makes jp taylor as well actually yeah yeah exactly right so i tend to think that when we think about the american riots the american capital riots they they teach us a lot about schmittian political theory and the crisis of legitimacy in that particular democratic institution which 
is not democratic in the same sense as maybe the British one. It works in a slightly different way. Mm. Now, that's another question, not to be too sort of conceptual, we hung up too much on concepts, but how do you understand legitimacy? Again, another another big, big $100,000 question. Um, I think the way I see legitimacy is... It, it, it's contrasting. It's the best way I could put it. So I think in order to be legitimate, there needs to be an element of democratic will. So legitimacy can't exist on its own plane. It needs to have an input from the people who you're supposed to be responding to. But it can't solely exist for that either. So a bit like Edmund Burke said when he talked about being a representative instead of a elector, um, you know, he's not doing his duty if he just replicates what his constituents want. He owes them his wisdom, his knowledge and his judgment as mm. an MP. And I think that's how I would view legitimacy. Uh, that's yeah. how I would ground it. Yeah, no, I think that's a good, I think that's an interesting way of grounding it in the sense of sort of uh, uh, relations between, or at least a relationality perhaps between more than one unit. I think that's quite interesting. Um Okay, that, that is fascinating. All right, so one thing I'd like to move on, uh, move on to, sorry, um, is something which I think you'll be able to enlighten the audience about, which is Walter Benjamin's Sovereign God. Yes. <laughs> could you, yes. I, I, could you explain um, uh, Benjamin's critique of Schmidt? I can, because I, I, I did this in a presentation about three months ago. Oh, did you? <laughs> and I... Yeah, I, I did. I did. I, I, I did because I came across it um, a year or so ago and it seemed to echo very similarly to what I'm saying. Mm. So ben, Benjamin's kind of critique of Schmidt's sovereign God is the belief that it's kind of twofold from what I understand it. It's first that no sovereign can possibly deal with the amount of decisions that a sovereign is supposed to in Schmidt's ideal world. So a sovereign is necessarily both going to be flummoxed by some of the questions that is going to come their way. Um, and also the sheer volume of decisions that are necessary to be made are, is insurmountable. So things are going to get lost. You're going to have to pass down responsibilities. You're going to have to divest um, your decision-making processes, which is then going to kind of start to crack the physical structure of, 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 of governmentality in that sense. And the second one is that Sovereigns don't always get it right. I mean, you know, we've got an abundance of evidence in the past year um, to tell us that with the COVID-19 epidemic, both in this country and both, both um, and in Europe um, with the vaccine, they, they seem to be struggling with that and our initial response. So, so decision-making, according to Benjamin, is when you, when you get things wrong, you're not really a god anymore. You become human. You become very human, <laughs> and your ability to, to to claim the right to make these decisions upon high comes crashing down upon you very quickly. Um, that's how I would interpret it. I mean, feel free to correct me, Kate, correct me, Kevin. I'm I'm sure you know, you know this very well. Um, but that's how <laughs> I, I would don't. interpret it. Um, <laughs> but no, it's no just, I, I, what it always makes me think of, actually, whenever I I sort of delve into Benjamin and Schmidt is the sort of uh, political theological lens. I always end up going back to Kantorovich and the King's Two Bodies for some reason. I always end up sort of finding myself back there. Um, but I think that's rather fascinating as well, that as you say, this notion of 
the sovereign god no longer being able to be a god precisely through the act of bad decision making. And I think that speaks to sort of grander theological and ontological questions about, you know, what it is to exist as a flawed being alongside that and what it is to engage in a politics of being flawed. There's a like that that famous quote by Kant, um, the idea that um oh gosh, it's just escaped my mind. Uh, from the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made, right? You know, the, 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 yeah, yeah. Right? this idea that that the sovereign God can indeed not be a God by bad decision-making, and I think that's rather fascinating. Okay, that's really interesting that you talk about Benjamin, um, uh, that you sort of spoken about Benjamin about three months ago. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, good, that's good thinking. Um, one other thing I'd like to touch upon um, is more contemporary thinker. Um, I tend to look at him through Foucault's lens of biopolitics, but can you walk us through Agamben's relationship to Schmidt's uh, state of exception? Yeah, of course. Um, and again, like I, I don't do Agamben anymore because I don't have to space through to my thesis, unfortunately. And <laughs> I, I was planning on doing both, and then it's quickly become apparent it's just not possible to do yeah. it in 100,000 words. <laughs> um, so, so my <laughs> my interpretation of the gambit, and again, like, correct me if I'm wrong, Kieran, uh, I'll feel free to jump in. My, my interpretation of Gambin is that the gambit kind of takes on Schmidt's state of that well, exceptional rule, and he deposits it inside a framework of liberal democratic states. So mm-hmm. he says that, okay, Schmidt's kind of right to a degree um, about certain forms of power. But he's kind of the way I see it is he, he kind of thinks he's wrong about liberal democratic states to a degree as well. So Agamben believes that any emergency measures that are ever introduced into a liberal democratic state ultimately unfold the rule of law, ultimately override the rule of law. So he has this quote, doesn't he? I think it's in the state of the exception Agamben, where he talks about how law becomes merely a plaything, a toy, once you start to involve the exception. Um, which kind of gives a good and gives a nice, for once uh, in a Gambin's writing, a clear, <laughs> way to, a clear way to understand what he's saying. Um, and yeah, so a Gambin definitely takes on the Foucauldian lens. You're completely right when he talks. I mean, you know, the 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 picture on his first book or his first big book, um, it's the picture of the camp, isn't it? Of, yeah, I'm not sure if it's Burke, I'm not sure if it's Burke now, but it's a concentration camp. Um, in Homo Seca. And he talks about how the relationship between the camp and our physical bodies through these exceptional measures uh, can, can be registered through, through the state, creates a state of exception where we exist outside the norms of the liberal democratic framework. And he uses several examples of this. So he uses um, the Patriot Act, but he goes way further back. So in, in the state of exception, he talks about uh, Lincoln for instance, suspending um, the right to a jury trial and things yeah. like that. Um, and he argues that ever since then, we've never really been able to catch up. And Agamben's been really controversial in the past year because he's talked about the coronavirus being used um, by governments as a way to strip us all of our civil rights. And he he almost called the coronavirus a borderline hoax. He became very close to saying those words. Um, he, he, you know, to an alarming degree, in my in my view, I think. Um, but that's what happens when you when you believe that any emergency measures at all um, rid, rid out um, liberal democratic states and 
our philosophy is that they completely overrun um, yeah. the, the the philosophy of law. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I, I'm actually giving a paper to the PSA in in two weeks upon trying to contest this idea um, using yeah. the differences between between Hungary and the United Kingdom and our different differing approaches to to exceptional measures. Yeah, no, I mean that's definitely an interesting question. I remember. Um, I remember someone sending me a link to the, the sort of article that Agamben had written and then uh, reading uh, Roberto Esposito's reply to that uh, particular article. Um, would you, I think I know how you'd answer this, but do you think that the measures that have been enacted as a result of the coronavirus pandemic come anything close to a state of exception? Um. I can see an argument where they do. Mm-hmm. So I, I think what's interesting in the past week is the, the new policing act that Priti Patel wants to get into law. That's a good example where some of these measures, which were emergency measures, are being concreted into law, um, potentially. Mm-hmm. I think where the difference lies is that she's still using law. She's still using law to do it. These aren't executive measures or decrees that are going to run forever these are going to be put into a statute bill these are going to be debated in parliament there's going to be proper oversight for this and judicial oversight as well so in that except in that even with even with that um it's not really a state of exception as i would understand it now it might be that some people recognize a gambit is saying well measures produced in extraordinary times then become part of the normal legal framework and that's how the state of exception can overrun a legal system by kind of hijacking it like a bit like a, I don't want to say like a virus in these times <laughs> but a bit like a virus <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, it um, speaks to what Benjamin talks about right where he talks about the state of exception becoming a rule yeah exactly um I, I, I tend to believe that we need to be able to distinguish and there is a distinction between liberal democratic states which need to have emergency press buttons to deal with situations um like this was like this year has been a very good example or the past 18 months have been a very good example of the state that you know you cannot function in normal time you can't function normally in extraordinary times it's not it's not possible the government needs to be able to create certain executive decisions and certain executive decrees to answer extremely serious and dangerous potential environments and this has been one of them and I don't think I think we need to distinguish between that and authoritarian states which hijack and use these events to push an agenda um, that they that they want to push anyway. And they're not really interested in rights. Like Hungary's a really good example of yeah. on paper committing quite similar, um, quite similar legislative moves, like suspending parliament, um, creating like pumping out decrees, for example, both corona and non-corona related, talking about public safety. But then the difficulty in rolling them back is much more tricky in Hungary, for example. There's there's very limited parliamentary opposition. Orban created dictatorial powers to himself, executed decree-making powers. He addressed a wide, a broad sweep of legislative issues that had nothing to do with the virus, and there were no checks. So this was a rolling a rolling implementation that was totally up to Orban and his party, basically, when they decided to give these powers up. In the United Kingdom, we've got what we call sunset clauses. So these are these are time limitations 
And when executive measures can be made and emergency measures can be implemented, we've had serious parliamentary scrutiny. There's all kinds um, of safe state uh, backstops and safeguards to ensure that the UK government can't just, the cabinet can't just rule via executive decree. Um, that there are, you know, there has to be, for instance, a parliamentary reauthorization um, of new emergency powers and stuff like that, um, which, you know, uh, seems to me sensible. And I, I don't think we, I don't think we are in a state of exception, as a Gambian would call it. Um, I, I do think you need to be careful about these about these measures because anytime you get into an emergency situation, an emergency powers are given, that gives the government an awful lot of ability, a, a lot of breathing space to do what they want um and that already you always need to be careful about that yeah totally and uh, i have one last question for you um and that is one thing which is always associated with hannah arendt is the idea of political action in the state of exception how how do you think is the best manner historically speaking of escaping that state of exception again small question <laughs> Um, of course, that's context bound as well, but in, in yes, terms yeah. of, sort of like broader conceptual thinking. I, I, don't, I don't think there is a best action out there. I, 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 um, I don't think there's one best action out there. I, I, I tend to believe that the state of the exception disintegrates on itself. I believe it becomes a hollow shell and it kind of dies. Um, now, it will fight back. So you might need a revolution like we saw in the Arab Springs. Now that might mean that you do that through excessive, like extreme violence in the end, like we saw in some of the civil wars in Libya, unfortunately in Syria as well, you know, the great cost of human life. Or it might be that you do that through nonviolent methods like the Egyptian regime, which, you know, eventually just folded because people, there were, there were just too many people who no longer accepted the authority of the state and no longer were listening to what President Mubarak was saying or doing um and there was no alternative um that was it it was game over i tend to think that if you want to escape the state of the exception if you are in a minority uh, in the state of the exception you've got to you've got to be careful with how you do it i don't think revolutionary action is the best way out of that i think you need to start to try to build a consensus and be patient um let you, you know that the regime itself will eventually you know, the leaders will die. It might take many, many years. Um, <laughs> uh, their consensus building is generally quite weak. So, you know, you, if you're like relying upon patrimonial politics, that's going to create fissures inside the regime itself, right? So the regime itself is not going to be the static, wholesome thing. It's going to be kind of quite maneuvering. So people often talk to me about North Korea. And people often talk to me about, well, doesn't North Korea kind of disprove your entire point? You know, you know, they've been operating like this for 70 years. There's no end in sight. They've got complete control. I'm like, well, ha ha have you have you looked at the inner dynamics of the North Korean state? Yeah. <laughs> the inner dynamics of the North Korean state are extremely messy. Um, you know, family members often pop off to an early to to, to an early grave. Um, you know, so I, I tend to believe that. It is hard to maneuver outside of authoritarian dictatorial decision estates, um, but they don't tend to last. They tend to be very fragile. And it seems to be that it's a bit of a spark. Mm. Once that spark is set off, people start to realize that, well, hang on a minute, this regime is not also mighty, it's not also powerful. It, 
it can be it it can be um fought against it can be it you know it, it can be opposed and I think the Abspring is a really interesting lesson for that. You know, the Abspring started because a man set himself on fire yeah, um, in Tunisia. That's strange. That's almost that's just over ten years ago now, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it is quite unbelievable. It's been that long, and yeah, it feels like yesterday in in certain respects. I remember seeing yeah. it on television, and I remember seeing it all over social media at the time, and. It's, it's in many ways, I mean, I think personally think that the conflict in Syria is so sad for it to have is sort of broken down to the point where that power vacuum allowed in to other forces like ISIS, for example, to take hold in northern Iraq and Syria. And where do you think the conflict is going in that respect? Or do you think there's any end in sight in the particular conflict? I think it's going to remain a low-level conflict that you've got now for quite a number of years. I mean, the Assad regime is is broken, and it's broken beyond repair. Um, it's 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 basically a client state at this point to Iran and Russia. It doesn't have the <laughs> doesn't have the ability to to repair itself or to repair the country, and it can't bring people back to whom they've slaughtered. I mean, they've they've they've, they've been responsible for the for about ninety percent of the casualties in the in the Syrian civil war, the Assad regime. The, They've been clever in the sense that um, they allowed ISIS to grow. So, so you say that ISIS grew out of this political vacuum. In one sense, that's true. ISIS was also helped, given a great big push by the Assad regime um, in, when they released you know, hundreds, scores of jihadists from their prisons, which they also did. Um, they also allowed AQI, the precursor to Islamic State, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, to operate across their border as well, and they didn't particularly like the Americans. Um, so, in some senses, like the Assad regime has been quite clever with how they nurtured the conflict and how they've tried to develop coping strategies. But they're now in a position where they, they can't rebuild. People aren't willing to give them aid outside of Russia and Iran yeah. because of the mass corruption and simply what they've done. So. It's kind of a broken, fragile state, and it's going to stay that way for an extremely long time. I don't know what the future holds for that country, unfortunately. I know that it can't be fixed while Assad's in power. It, it just can't be. He's broken that beyond recognition, and he can't fix it. It's a, it's an interesting example of the limitations of the decision, because yeah. the past decisions he's made, he's boxed himself in, and he can't do anything else now. He's, he's kind of boxed in, and at some point, it'll get better, you hope, but I don't see I don't see a I don't see a happy future anytime soon, unfortunately, in that conflict. That's sad. That is sad. And very last question, finish on a on a happier note, perhaps. If you had to recommend one political theory book to read that didn't involve Schmidt, who would you pick? What would you pick? One political theory book which didn't involve Schmidt. I'd probably go for the oranges at Origins of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt, if I had to choose. That and I'd tie with On Liberty by Mill. And I know that's maybe not be popular because he's an old school liberal, but I, I love I loved that book. I, I love that <laughs> book. It's, only, it's not even really a book, it's a pamphlet, but it's got as many ideas as, as, as a book. Um, so I, they, those two would be tied. Um, for me. What, what about yourself? Myself, my favourite book, political theory-wise, is also Arendt, is The Human Condition. But aside oh from goodness. that... Aside from that, oh gosh, I didn't think you'd ask me what I would pick. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from that, I tend to normally suggest someone like Oakshot as a sort of oh, like yeah. reader, just because I think there's many different ways to go with Oakshot's rationalism in politics. 
um, and to move from there. So two sort of like completely different kinds of political theory, I suppose, alongside that. But yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Sam. Really, really for having me. So that's it from us this week. We've really enjoyed having Sam Mace here to discuss Westphalian sovereignty and the state of exception within Syria and Iraq. If you would like to follow Sam, his Twitter handle is in the description box alongside a link to the blog where there is lots of extra content. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe and follow. Thank you for listening and I look forward to next week.